Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. January 1st, 1739, the French ships Isle and Marie were fumbling through the lowest, most inhospitable regions of the Southern Atlantic Ocean when they found something quite remarkable. Their captain, a young man named Jean-Baptiste Charles Bouvet de Lozier, had set off with dreams of wealth, fame and power. He believed that somewhere south of the equator lay a massive continent, and Bouvet, well, he'd just found something nobody else had seen before. At this point in time, Westerners already knew something of Australia. A small number of historians believe the Portuguese had sighted the continent as early as the 1520s, but evidence for this is questionable. In 1592, a Dutch sailor named Jan Huygen van Linschoten made his way to India, while he was there, he came across a group of Portuguese sailors in possession of the maps needed to reach the Far East. He stole those maps. These maps, with instructions on trade winds and the known hazards of such a voyage, had prior to this theft exclusively belonged to the Portuguese. The Dutch were finding their sea legs at this time and were soon to pioneer the modern corporation and soon Dutch trading ships would regularly sail out to the Spice Islands and beyond. It took until 1606 for one of their own, Willem Janzoon, to sight far north Queensland. The Spaniard, Louis Vaz de Torres, arrived just months later, and mapped out stretches of the north of the country. In 1611, the Dutch adopted the practice of travelling along the Roaring Forties, a latitude where the wild winds helped cut travelling time considerably. But this also put them on a path to hit Australia's west coast if they misjudged their longitude. Because of this, more explorers were sailing alongside and mapping parts of Australia's west coast. Notably, there was Dirk Hartog who found a place to land in 1616. He provided evidence of landfall to later settlers by accidentally leaving a pewter dinner plate behind. Frederick de Houtman nearly hit an atoll off the coast in 1619. At some time, we needs must come back to Houtman himself, his misadventures in Arche, and that atoll, and a certain wreck that happened there. Speaking of that, in 1629, a Dutch ship was in those waters. Some very bad things happened on the atoll, now called Houtman's Aprolos. Their lifeboats sailed the length of the west coast of Australia, and Australia would receive its first two European settlers. And there were several others besides. Abel Tasman's visit in 1642 filled in much of the picture. William Dampier's visit in 1699 is interesting for other reasons. They're both figures we may as well put a pin in as well, we'll come back to them. Cook, Bass and Flinders would all come later. But by Bouvet's time, Europeans knew there was a landmass, roughly as big as Europe down there. Many of Europe's great thinkers, however, reasoned there had to be a whole lot more besides. 
so was Bouvet lobbied to go out and claim that land for France. And the French figured, what was the harm in sending out this young man? Bouvet left for parts unknown, believing if he found the fabled Terra Australis, the French crown would appoint him governor of Terra Australis. As governor, he would attain the fame and fortune he desired. On December 10th, 1738, Bouvet's ships dipped below the 44th parallel, well into the Roaring Forties. They sailed into a deep blanket of fog which took several days to pass through. As the fog started to clear, Bouvet was greeted by several massive icebergs. He wrote they were floating rocks which were much more to be feared than land. On New Year's Day, the ships were as far as one could possibly be from another human being. When they discovered a very high land covered with snow, which appeared through the mist. Bouvet was unable to circumnavigate the island, let alone land. It would have been one hell of a task to do either at the time. The air was exceedingly foggy, the seas exceedingly rough, and full of moving ice blocks as tall as skyscrapers. The island itself was surrounded by steep cliffs that reached thousands of feet into the air at the highest points. Now just how inhospitable this island was would become apparent to later explorers. With 93% of the island covered by ice year-round, you couldn't grow any food there. The seas around the island made landing with supplies extremely dangerous. Add to that, those sheer cliffs were dangerous to climb, even with mountaineering gear, as they are highly prone to avalanches. Also, the island contained an active volcano that goes off every couple of years. South Africa sailed to the island in 1955, thinking it a good place to set up a weather station. They couldn't find a flat plane large enough to set one up. Three years later, an American icebreaker stopped by the island, discovering it had grown an extension out the back due to a recent eruption. The island now had a significant flat area to set up a weather station. In the dog days of a southern summer, the island reaches an average of only 2 degrees Celsius. This does not take into account wind chill. Winds of 50 knots are considered mild on the island. Wisely, Bouvet noted where he believed the island to be on the map, claimed it in the name of France, and then moved on. He sighted Antarctica soon afterwards and attempted to land there for 12 days straight, before giving up on that too. By then, a large number of his men were dying of scurvy, so the Isle and the Marie quickly made for the Cape of Good Hope. Unbeknownst to Bouvet, he took down the coordinates of the island incorrectly. Not that anyone was in a rush to go there, but it was noted by explorers like the whaling ships who were venturing out there at the end of the century. The island was rediscovered in 1808 by a British whaler named James Lindsay. Lindsay named the island after himself, then too promptly lost the island. Like Bouvet, he recorded the wrong coordinates. In 1822, the American adventurer Benjamin Morrell claimed to have landed there and even scaled the island's high cliffs. This is questioned by most. Not least of all as he was using Lindsay's coordinates, which were out by several hundred kilometres. 
Correct coordinates were finally locked down by the British in 1825, but no one was known to have actually landed on the island, till a Norwegian ship arrived in 1927. And they too claimed this inhospitable rock, and put two huts on the island. Both huts were found flattened by the winds when they returned two years later. Sometime after that, Norway did put a weather station there, on the landmass that was belched out by the volcano in the late 50s. The Norwegians gave the island the name it is known by now. They christened it in honour of its original discoverer, Bouvet Island. Although Bouvet Island is the most remote point on Earth, 1,600 kilometres from the nearest trade route, another couple of hundred kilometres again to the nearest landmass, it does have two short tales relating to it I would like to share with you all today. First, there was that lifeboat. In 1964, South Africa still had its eyes on Bouvet Island. This new extension was already christened Nairosa, meaning New Mound in Norwegian, and claimed sight unseen by Norway. But clearly South Africa were never too worried about who claimed to own this island. Besides the American icebreaker, which never made landfall, no one was known to have been there in many, many years. On Easter Sunday, two ships approached the Nairosa. They waited three days for the winds to die down enough to send a helicopter out to the island. On board the helicopter, a British adventurer named Alan Crawford. He's now best known for his work on the world's most remote inhabited island, Tristan de Kuna and his advocacy in returning the people of Tristan da Cunha back to the island years after a volcanic eruption saw them evacuated to England in 1961. But for our purposes, we need to know Crawford was a well-thought-of South Seas adventurer. What Crawford saw there puzzled the world for half a century. Near the point where the helicopter landed, a lagoon had formed. A handful of fur seals had made their way up there, were bathing in the water, next to a half-submerged lifeboat. On the rocks bordering the lagoon, two oars and a 44-gallon drum. There were no markings on the boat, drum or oars to suggest who these items once belonged to. A search of the barren island yielded no further clues, no bodies were found. The crew, having around 45 minutes to do a quick survey of the land, and to take rock samples, and all the while while they're doing that to fend off a gang of enraged elephant seals also on the Nairosa. Their search was not terribly exhaustive, but the men felt safe concluding there were no human beings dead or alive to be found on the island. For decades, the lifeboat remained a mystery. The closest trade route lay 1,600 kilometres to the north, so the crew of some ship mutinied and jettisoned the captain like Bly on the bounty. Could anyone really row a lifeboat that distance? For the world's roughest seas, and if so, why? If it was flotsam washed ashore, and this goes with the Bly hypothesis too, how did the boat make it up the steep cliffs several hundred feet high on the Nairosa in one piece? It must have landed with a full crew to haul it up the cliff. And if this was the case, where are the signs of a makeshift camp? Surely if you have a sizable party, you leave a couple of people to set up camp, while others go explore and so forth. 
And if there were people who landed with the vessel, and then negotiated the steep incline, where were their remains? Were they all killed and eaten by a gang of 4,000 pound elephant seals? And if they'd landed there and gotten the better of any of the seals congregating there at the time, till somebody rescued them, where was the evidence of seal remains? Have they explored further inland and gotten buried by an avalanche? And if rather than a mutiny, a shipwreck had occurred, surely someone would have noticed a missing ship between 1955 and 1964, right? Ultimately, it appears the murkiness of the Cold War obscured the answer, or to the West at least, for half a century. In October 1958, a Russian whaler named Slava 9 was near the island when they decided to make landfall. A group of men landed on the Nairosa, but the weather took a turn for the worse. Those men were left to fend for themselves on the island for several days, until safe to send a helicopter for them. I guess in this case the biggest mystery is why the men didn't have the boat upside down, on land as a shelter. Our final tale this week takes place 3am Oslo time, 22nd September 1979. Our location, well, an uninhabitable island on the same line of longitude as Oslo, which is to say it was 3am on Bouvet Island. In the dead of night, a massive double flash was detected close to the island. There are a few reasons we know there was a flash and think we know what caused it. In 1963, most of the world's nations agreed to a partial nuclear test ban. Signatories were no longer allowed to test a nuclear bomb above ground, in space or underwater. You could, and a number of countries continued to do this, test a nuke by digging a very deep hole in the ground, then setting the bomb off down the bottom of that hole. This does not produce a signature double flash, a flash unlike anything else known in nature. To look out for people testing regardless, the USA launched 12 reconnaissance satellites, VELA satellites, which detect both that flash and any increased radiation in the atmosphere. In the wee small hours, VELA satellite 6911 detected the flash from its orbit it was not the only device to pick up the incident that day. At the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, nearly 10,500 kilometers to the northeast, a fast-moving ionospheric disturbance was detected. The ionosphere being the layer of our atmosphere that sits between the air we breathe and the wilds of space. Coronal mass ejections like the Carrington event are the normal natural cause for such readings. There was no coronal mass ejection on or around 22nd September 1979. The US Navy's SOSIS devices, a network of underwater sound recorders, also picked up the heavy thud from the Vela incident, as it came to be known. The thud registered as far out as a device near Prince Edward Island, Canada. In Melbourne, Australia, 9,100 kilometres to the east, high levels of iodine-131 radiation showed up in the thyroids of sheep. A relatively unthreatening side effect of a nuclear detonation 
Iodine-131 has a half-life of about eight days and is even used as a treatment for thyroid cancers in humans. The element is known to show up in the thyroids of grazing animals following a nuclear detonation. The sheep were on farms in South Australia on the day of the Vela incident. The meatworks, unbeknownst to the public, sent monthly thyroid samples to the US government from the 1950s to the 1980s. This all added up to the high likelihood someone had detonated a nuclear weapon on or near the most remote location on Earth. So just what happened and who are the most likely suspects? With much of the USA's documentation still classified, officially we can only catch glimpses, such as a handful of comments left in notebooks by former President Jimmy Carter. These comments can be found at his presidential library. We're also told US scientists were shipped off to Bouvet Island. They checked the scene of the alleged crime it could say something like a nuclear device appeared to have been detonated there, but they couldn't 100% rule out other natural phenomena. There are currently two schools of thought. First, the Vela 6911, a 10-year-old satellite in need of calibration, malfunctioned after being hit by some space junk. Or someone nearby, who as far as anyone knew, did not have nuclear weapons, tested a nuke there. It just so happened one of Bouvet Island's neighbours was secretly developing nuclear weapons at the time. Now if one were to ask today who are the nuclear armed countries, certain lists come up. The USA, United Kingdom, France and Russia of course are the top of that list. India and Pakistan, two neighbouring countries who have gone to war with one another four times since 1947 at time of recording. They each have a cache of nukes. Another nation who to date have had nine border disputes with India. Though when these conflicts break out, the weapons employed by mutual agreement are limited to bamboo poles and rocks, I couldn't make it up, um, is China. North Korea is now a member of this club. Although a long time coming, they most certainly were not a nuclear power in 1979. The former Soviet states of Belarus, Kazakhstan and Ukraine all had nuclear weapons in the Cold War era, but when the Iron Curtain fell they handed those weapons back to Russia. Several NATO countries, namely Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands and Turkey, all play host to several nuclear warheads as well. And there are almost certainly two other nations, one who has admitted to having nuclear weapons and another who, to this day, kind of sort of deny having them, normally followed by a sly wink just to say, just kidding, of course we do. Don't even think of messing with us. The first country is South Africa. From the early 1980s, it was known they were a nuclear power. Officially, they dismantled all their weapons in 1991. With apartheid coming to an end, their fear of invasion from another country lessened. From as early as 1961, we know South Africa began secretly enriching their own uranium deposits. In 1977, they went further, building a testing site in the Kalahari Desert, in the northwest of the country. 
If a nuclear bomb was detonated near Bouvet Island, it almost certainly has something to do with South Africa. But it can't have solely been the South African enterprise. And this is where that other country comes in. Israel are long suspected to have had nuclear weapons also. One can understand why they might feel they need such a doomsday device. The story of the modern Zionist movement forming in the late 1890s and their progress towards establishing a state in Palestine, well, it's a long tale. But suffice to say, an Israeli state was in existence by 1948. That state fought five major conflicts with its Arab neighbours in the years since. The First Arab-Israeli War of 1948, the Suez War of 1956, the Six-Day War of 1967, the Yom Kippur War of 1973, and in 1982, Israel preemptively invaded Lebanon. These wars have all been fought over Israel's continued presence in the Levant. The moment they were rumoured to have a cache of nuclear weapons, and a plan of last resort if attacked, codenamed the Samson Option, tensions in the region cooled down a bit. And there was another reason for that, but more on that in a second. Now, Israel had a nuclear reactor, the Damona reactor, as early as 1956. It's believed they started working on building a bomb as early as 1966. On the other side of the ledger, when Egypt started hiring former Nazi scientists who had worked for the Nazi nuclear effort, it is alleged Mossad hired former Nazi super-soldier Otto Skorzeny to assassinate those scientists. Officially, Israel neither confirm nor deny if they have nuclear weapons. But if they do, they almost certainly collaborated with South Africa. In 1977, South Africa swapped 600 tons of uranium with Israel for just 30 grams of tritium gas in return. Israel has no uranium deposits. Tritium gas is an extremely rare isotope of hydrogen that is used to help fuel a nuclear explosion. Tiny trace amounts can be found in the atmosphere but typically it needs to be generated by irradiating lithium in a nuclear reactor. This element had been a stumbling block for South Africa, as they had no nuclear reactor of their own. So it probably transpired a joint Israeli-South African mission set sail from Cape Town to a mysterious, inaccessible island, more than 1,600 kilometers from a single witness if the USA discovered this at the time, why might they keep quiet about it? If they did, and I'm only speculating, it likely has something to do with Israel. Jimmy Carter had only just brokered a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt a year earlier, at the Camp David Peace Accords. The fallout from the Six-Day and Yom Kippur Wars hit Western nations hard after Arab oil-producing nations struck back at them by ramping up oil prices, causing the OPEC crisis that persisted throughout much of the 1970s. Several nations who backed Israel had to opt for carless days to cope with it. Economies were hit by massive inflation, 
In New Zealand, a questionable right-wing politician who successfully became Prime Minister only by smearing his opposition as Cossacks reacted to the crisis with a bona fide far-reaching socialist program around oil, gas and power generation known as Think Big, New Zealand's very own five-year plan. In 1979, Jimmy Carter was preparing to run for re-election against a mediocre conservative actor who was once a CIA asset during the Blacklist era. His opponent was almost as out of his depth in the role as Trump turned out to be. But elections are lost by one side through voter dissatisfaction, more than they are ever won by the other through bright ideas. And Carter looks set to lose in a landslide regardless. If it were disclosed Israel had secretly built a nuclear bomb, so soon after peace talks. It could have completely unraveled the peace process, doomed Carter to a one-term presidency, damaged world economies, and sullied the president's legacy. It isn't inconceivable the man knew more than he led on to, and just chose to keep quiet over things. It isn't inconceivable the man knew more than he led on to, and he just chose to keep certain things quiet. I'm not saying it happened, not saying it didn't. It, it could have happened. As with the tale of the lifeboat, will time reveal or perhaps confirm what happened during the Vela incident? Well, only time will tell. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.